Well, good morning again. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. And if you're joining us and you don't have a Bible with you, that's no worries. We have one that we would love for you to borrow. And if you'd like, take it home with you. So there's blue pew Bibles uh, in the seat in front of you. And if you're looking at one of those and you're not sure where we are, we're on page 5. So we're still right at the beginning of the Bible trying to figure out how everything got started and how the world got to be in the situation we're in. So we're looking this morning at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And let me read that for us now. So hear the word of the Lord. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of God. Well, this morning, I'm going to start a little different. I'm going to start by showing you a couple pictures here. So go ahead and put the first picture up. Now, who can tell me what this is? What I hear is Saturn? Earth? All right, a couple guesses. It's non-planetary. All right, so I'm not going to spend long, so you got your guesses. They're probably not what it is. All right, go ahead and show me what it is now. Next picture. It's actually the pages of a book. Okay, so it's zoomed in super close. Now it's pages of a book. This is going to make sense in a minute. All right, go ahead and put the next picture up. Who knows what this is? I hear a lot of murmuring. Nobody's bold enough to be like, I know what it is. Skin, okay. All right, any last guesses? All right, let's see what this one is. Ah, cantaloupe. All right, and one last one. Any guesses? I heard Coca-Cola is all I heard, and a virus. And number three is coffee. All right, so now you're wondering, has Pastor lost his mind? Why are we doing this? The point here is that sometimes when you zoom in too close, Things aren't as clear, and you lose sight of the big picture. And our passage this morning is a lot like those. It's one of the most challenging, confusing, and debated parts of the Bible. And yet, at the same time, it's one of the clearest. How can that be? Well, it's just like those pictures. 
We get lost and confused if we only focus in on the details that are not so clear. But if we zoom out and focus in on what is clear, the picture is stunningly plain. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We will try to understand some of the details that are unclear, but we're going to focus our time on the big picture that is crystal clear. In fact, I'm just going to tip my hand and show you right up front, here's the main idea from this passage. I want you to know it so that it's in your mind as we walk through it, okay? Here's the main idea of our passage. Our sin is worse than we know. And God's grace is greater than we can imagine. Our sin is worse than we know, and God's grace is greater than we can imagine. Now, for us to see this, we need to remember where our passage fits into the storyline, right? This is so important in these early chapters of Genesis, that if we can't just jump in and take an isolated thing and pretend it doesn't have a context, there's a storyline, and we're jumping into part of it. So, let's remember where we are. Ever since chapter 4, we've been following two different lines of people, right? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We've been tracing Adam's line through Seth and Adam's line through Cain. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. So first, we looked at the line of Cain. And this was a line filled with cultural advances. Things like city building, livestock raising, metalworking, music and the arts... But it was also a line that was spiraling further and further into sin so that by the time we got to the seventh generation in Lamech, we have him distorting God's design for marriage by taking multiple wives. We have him showing extreme violence in his killing of another man and his threats of extreme vengeance against anyone who would dare mess with him. That's one line. But then we trace the story of another line, the righteous line through Seth, the offspring who was given by God. That's what we looked at last week. At the end of chapter 4, we're told that that line begins to call upon the name of the Lord. So they're off to a good start. This is a line of people who worships. Then in chapter 5, we saw that the seventh in their line, Enoch, walked with God so intimately that he didn't die. God simply took him. And then Lamech has this son and names him Noah because he's hoping for the promised offspring who would save from the curse. And that's where we left things last week. At the end of chapter 5, we leave things hanging with the hopes of one who might give us relief from the curse in this long line of godly people. Now, if you have flipped ahead or you know your Bibles, after our passage... Next week, when we pick up the story, what we're going to find is floodwaters rising to destroy everything in sight. So what happened? Like, if this is one of those shows, if you miss an episode, you're like, I am so lost. Last time I watched, this was going on. Now this episode, what happened in the episode I missed? How did we get from the righteous line, hoping for a curse breaker, to the world getting destroyed? In other words, why does the flood happen? We often talk about the flood happening, but this tells us why. And that's what chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is here to tell us. 
why God sends a flood on the world. Now, our passage divides in half, neatly in half. And both halves center around what someone saw. Look at the text. In verse 2, the sons of God saw something they call good. And then drop down in verse 5, the Lord saw something that he calls wicked. Okay? Two halves, two, two people seeing things. So let's follow along and look first at what man saw in verses 1 to 4. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So what's going on here? Well, we start off in verse 1. We see that people are multiplying, just like God had told them and blessed them to do. So that's, that's good, right? I mean, people are beginning to fill up the earth and spread out on it. Mankind seems to be prospering and things seem to be going well. So far, so good. But then in verse 2, we bump into a sin problem. Now, to understand what that problem is, we first need to clarify something. And that's the question, who are these sons of God? Because how we understand them will affect how we understand what the sin is. Now, throughout history, there have been lots of ideas, and I mean lots of ideas, but there have been two main options for who the sons of God are. The first option is that some people would contend that these sons of God are angels or angelic beings, and people who understand them to be angels would typically say that what's happening here is that angels are intermarrying and procreating with humans. And if so, if that is the case, then the sin that's taking place here is that angels are crossing a boundary that God has established by marrying humans. They ought not do that, and yet they are. Now, the main reason people hold this view is because later in Scripture, angels are, in fact, referred to as sons of God. That is a title used for angels. And... Furthermore, people believe that this incident that we just read about in Genesis 6 is what some New Testament authors are talking about. In places like 2 Peter and Jude, you'll see references to angels who sin against God by leaving their proper authority and are now kept in chains until the day of judgment. They say, yeah, what they're talking about there, that's Genesis 6. Could be. If we're really honest, could be. That's an option. But let me give you a few reasons why I don't think we're talking about angels here. First, while that phrase, sons of God, will be used later for angels, we've had no mention of them in the Bible yet. There have been no angels to this point. So if you're the original reader, you wouldn't be expecting angels to suddenly show up out of nowhere with no description as to what they are. Second, Genesis 1 emphasized that all of God's creation reproduces according to its kind. Ten times in chapter 1 we see according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to... God's making a point. He designed creation so that you don't have one kind of creation reproducing with another. They each reproduce according to their kind. And this would be a clear departure from that. Third reason... Jesus teaches us in the New Testament, places like Luke 20, Mark 12, that angels don't marry and procreate. 
Listen to Jesus in Matthew 22. He says, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus is saying, angels don't do that. That's not something they do. But the biggest reason, the biggest reason why I don't think we're talking about angels here is simply looking at what this passage is all about. This whole section is about why God brings a flood to destroy mankind. He's punishing man for man's sin, not punishing man for angels' sin. So, if it's not angels, well, what's the other option? The second option, and the one I think fits best with our context, is that the sons of God here is referring to the godly line of Seth. The godly line of Seth. Which, again, if you think about it, we're reading a story. We're not just jumping in midstream. Wouldn't we expect them to still be the main focus here since we're jumping in in the middle of their genealogy? Like that genealogy didn't end. It got left hanging at the end of chapter 5 with Noah. There was no and he died. So we're still in the midst of trying to understand what happened in this godly line of Seth. So it makes sense that we're talking about them. And if that's the case, if we're right, that we're talking about the line of Seth, well now how do we explain what's going on here? What's the sin? Well, what it appears to be is that you've got this righteous line of Seth, this God's special people who are living in the midst of an evil generation, and now they're compromising by joining with the ungodly world around them. God's people are compromising by uniting themselves with those who are not his people. Okay, that's what's going on here. Is the daughters of man can either refer to the line of Cain specifically or just all daughters in general. And they are taking whoever they choose. They're not specifically choosing to be united with those who are God's people. Don't, and don't miss this language in verse 2. It's meant to sound familiar. Where have we heard this before? They saw that the daughters of man were attractive, or same word, good. So they saw that the daughters of man were good, and they took as their wives any they chose. Saw, good, took. Ringing any bells? This is meant to point us back to Eve. Just like she saw that the tree was good for food, she took of the fruit and ate. Well, now, God's special people disregard their calling by seeing something that looks good to them and taking forbidden wives. Now, I think there's actually two levels of things for us to pull out of this here. It's it's operating on two levels. First, I think it's talking about the specific sin of God's people joining themselves in marriage to those who don't belong to God's people. That's what's happening specifically. And this is another one of those threads that we see start here, but then gets woven all throughout our Bible. Again and again, we have to remember that the story of human history is a story of two different lines of people. The line of Cain and the serpent and the line of Seth and the woman. Always at enmity with each other. And God does not want his line joining themselves to the other line in marriage. 
Think with me for a minute about how this story plays out. This is not just unique here. Fast forward in Genesis to Genesis 24. You've got Abraham, the patriarch, the founder of this line of God's people who again has his blessing and is going to be a blessing to the entire world. And what happens? In Genesis 24, Abraham makes his servant swear an oath saying, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. He's saying, do not, under any circumstances, let my son, who's in the line of promise, marry this line. Go back to my line. Okay? Genesis 28. You've got Esau. Finds out that it would strongly displease his father and mother, so he marries a Canaanite woman. And it says explicitly that, I, that his father did not want him marrying outside the line. While Jacob, on the other hand, the one through whom the promise goes down, where does he go to find out? He goes back to the family line. Then, as God prepares his people to enter the promised land, he warns them not to be united in any way to the people that he's driving out before them. In particular, in Deuteronomy 7, he says this, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. This is helpful too, because this helps give us some insight as to why this is such a big deal. God knew that marrying these unbelievers from this ungodly line, he says, they'll turn your heart away. This is not just an arbitrary thing. He says, if you marry them, they will pull you away from me. It will happen. And if that happens, my anger will be kindled quickly and I'll destroy you. So he says, don't do it. Do not marry them. Joshua goes on to warn the people the same thing. And he says that if you join yourselves with unbelievers, they're going to be a snare and a thorn to you. They're going to catch you. You're going to be trying to walk with the Lord and you're going to find yourself stuck and unable to walk with him because of these marriages. And judges, we see those warnings come to fruition. It says, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods, their being the nations. This is why it's such a big deal. And one of the things we have to keep in mind, people have wrongly used these texts to try to foist onto the Bible a layer of racist or racocentrism that like there's one, he's saying, no, no, don't breed with other races. This has nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. He says it has to do with they will turn your heart away from me. That's what God's concerned about. He says if you link yourself so closely to someone who doesn't worship the God of the Bible, you are far more likely to be drawn away from God than they are to be drawn to God. How do we know? Because it happens over and over and over again in the Bible. Just look at the example par excellence, Solomon. What was King Solomon's downfall? I'll read it to you. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, 
and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. This isn't an idle threat like God says. It might happen, guys. I'm just throwing it out there as a cautionary. Maybe you should consider, think twice. It happens over and over and over again. God's saying, I don't want your heart to be led away from me. And the same principle, this isn't an Old Testament thing, right? Paul pulls this right into the New Testament about marrying those outside of God's people. 1 Corinthians 7.39 A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That's his qualification. It says, wife, if your husband dies, like you're no, you don't have to refrain from getting remarried. You can marry whoever you want as long as they're part of God's people. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? From beginning to end, God's word is clear. His people are not to join themselves in the most intimate relationship to those who don't worship the one true God. Why? Because they'll lead us astray from the one true God. And God loves us too much to let that happen. So one clear application here. This is not creative, doesn't take much thought. One clear application here is, if you are a follower of Jesus, do not marry someone who is not a follower of Jesus. Don't do it. That is not God's way of limiting you. That is God's way of loving you by not letting you leave him. He's protecting you, not restricting you. And let me go one step further. If you are a follower of Jesus, don't date someone who is not. You say, well, it says marriage. I'm just, we're just dating. The whole purpose of dating is to find the one you marry. So if you know you're not going to marry this person, don't date them. You only open the door to temptation. That's the specific application. But now let's zoom out. Because I think there's a broader application for all of us this morning. While this is dealing specifically with the sin of God's people marrying those who don't belong to him, I think the general principle is bigger than that. What's happening here in Genesis 6 is God's people see something in the world around them that looks good. It looks attractive. And even though God has forbidden it, they compromise their calling as God's special people by linking themselves with the ungodly world around them. And that is the temptation for all of us. We can all be drawn in by something in the world that looks good. It looks appealing, like, oh man, I would like to have that. Ooh, I would love to be a part of that. And we want it, so we link arms and join ourselves with those around us who do not worship the God we worship. And over time, our connection starts to slowly pull us from the God we love. We find ourselves more and more conformed to the world around us. We, we find ourselves starting to love what they love, to think how they think, to value what they value, to want what they want. So let this be a word of caution to us. This sin of taking what God has forbidden 
and joining themselves to the world around them came with grave consequences. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, once again, as I said at the beginning, there's lots of discussion over literally every verse in here about what it means. And there's two options to what 120 years means here. Either way, God is issuing a judgment. So what is that judgment? Well, one option is that God is starting the clock on judgment, saying, all right, 120 years, and then I wipe everybody out. Mankind's days will only be 120 years until widespread judgment comes. Because of man's sin, his days are numbered. That could be, very well could be. The other option is that God is limiting the lifespan of mankind to 120 years. This is the more common understanding, and I think it fits better with our context. Because while there are still some people who live longer than 120 years after the flood, we'll see this in uh, Genesis 10, I believe, there's, there's still longer lifespans, you do see a rapid drop in lifespans until it starts to level off with 120 being kind of the cap, seeming to be the upper limit, which also seems to fit with what we see in the world around us. I did an in-depth research of the oldest people alive today, and guess what? None of them were over 120. By in-depth, I mean I looked at Wikipedia. So you know that it's informed. But the bigger reason why I say that, so that's one reason I think it fits, but the bigger reason I think it fits better is because it falls in line with God's penalty for sin being a limiting of human life. Think back, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said they'd die instead of live forever. He cut it short. He said, no, 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 you're not living forever. There's an end. Now, they still lived hundreds of years. But now, sin has grown so bad in the earth that God goes further and says, not just that they won't live forever, but they won't live more than 120 years. He's further reducing, saying, all right, that's the penalty, is the limiting of human life. So that's what we have going on here. Now the next verse, just going to be honest, is another one of those confusing parts. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Alright, the moment you've been waiting for. Who were the Nephilim? To be honest, we're not really sure. Sorry to disappoint you, but that's, I think, the most honest and best answer is I will say they were not a superhuman race as the byproduct of angels and men. You'll hear that. Um, I kid you not, some people speculate they are aliens. I think we can conclusively rule that out. So hear me from your pulpit saying, I do not think this is talking about angels or aliens. All we know from the text is that they were mighty men who were famous, men of renown, men who had a great name. So whenever that phrase mighty men is used, it typically talks about warriors, men who are connected with war and fighting. So these are famous fighters, possibly connected to the rampant violence we're going to see a few verses down later in chapter 6. 
talks about that's why this flood comes, is there's widespread violence. And so here you've got these famous warrior figures. There's probably a good chance they had something to do with the violence spreading. But what verse 4 seems to be doing is simply giving the reader a frame of reference for when all this wickedness was multiplying on the earth. When was it? It was when the Nephilim were on the earth. Now that doesn't mean a lot to you and me, but it'd be the same thing of me trying to explain a, a group of people you were not familiar with or an event that you weren't familiar with. And I said, oh, you know, that event, it took place back in the days of the Romans. Now, you have a rough time frame of when that was, oh, okay, during the time of the Romans. I, I know roughly start, stop. I know what some things going on. I don't need to explain it further. That's kind of what they're saying. When the Nephilim were on the earth, this is a time, it's a time stamp. The early readers most likely understood what that was. We don't. But that's what it's functioning as, is a time stamp. So again, let me just come back to what I said earlier. There's lots of hard to understand things in this verse and in this text. But focus on what's clear. Man sinned grievously against God. And God gives grave consequences for that sin. That's what we're meant to see in verses 1 to 4. But now we come to the second part of the passage. In the first part, remember, the sons of God saw something good. But here, God sees something bad. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what did God see? He saw how great the wickedness of man was. Sin had become like an infestation. It wasn't just a little wickedness in a world of good. What started as just seeing a termite or two of sin had now a, become a whole infestation of sin that was eating away the very foundations of the world and left the whole structure about to collapse. Evil was pervasive. It was everywhere. And it wasn't just pervasive in all the earth. It was pervasive in all of us. Look at how it describes the heart of man. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How bad was it? Every intention. Every intention was evil. And not just partially evil, only evil and not just sometimes only evil continually friends this is how bad our sin is this is how great our wickedness we radically underestimate just how bad we really are we are not fundamentally good people with who do a couple wrong things we are people the bible says whose hearts Every intention was only evil continually. There's a term for how sinful our hearts really are. This, if you've ever heard this, this is what theologians call total depravity. Now the total part of that, what it does not mean, is it doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they can possibly be. You're like, well, I know so-and-so. I think, I mean, there's a lot more worse things. Yes, that's not what total depravity means. It means that every single part of us is affected by sin. Our thinking, 
our feeling, our desiring, our actions, every part of us has been affected and infected by sin. Our hearts are not partially sinful. They are totally depraved. Now, you might be saying, well, yeah, that's what it was in Genesis 6. It sounds like things got really bad there, but that's, that's not now. That's not today. I mean, the flood comes, and he wipes out most of the people, so total depravity, whoosh, wiped away as well, right? Well, spoiler alert, listen to what God promises in Genesis 8.21 after the flood. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God says this after the flood, when the only people at this point are Noah and his family. He says, man, the, the intention of man's heart is only evil from his youth. Unfortunately, total depravity didn't go away at the flood. It got into the ark with Noah and his family. And it doesn't just stop in Genesis. All throughout our Bible, we hear things like Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 7 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Romans 8 says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what we see back here in Genesis 6-5 is that that is why the flood came. Because of the great wickedness of the human heart. And the rest of the Bible warns us that apart from God's grace, that same great wickedness dwells in us. Friends, our sin is worse than we know. Apart from Jesus, our hearts are only evil continually. Which means there's no way we can save ourselves. There is no getting your act together. There is no cleaning yourself up. There is no turning over a new leaf because there's nothing good in us that wants to or is able to overcome the greatness of our sin. Self-help is not an option. If we're going to be saved, it's got to come from outside of us. So we see the evil in man's heart. Now let's look at what we see in God's heart. Look at verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This is a really important part, because what we see here is that sin grieves God's heart. Too often we can treat our sin like it's, it's not really that big a deal. I mean, the sins that you and I commit. Yeah, sure, some people out there, they do some things that are a big deal, but not us, not us church-going folk. I mean, God forgives us, right? So what's the big deal with a little sin? Like, oops, <laughs> there was some sin. But when we see our sin that way, it reveals that we don't really know the heart of God. If we knew God's heart, we would know just 
how grievous our sin is. We don't take sin lightly because God doesn't take sin lightly. So we don't just excuse sin in ourselves or condone it in others. We take sin seriously because sin grieves God's heart. And this word for grief, just to be clear, doesn't mean it just makes him a little sad. Like, oh man, you guys did that? That's not what this means. It's a word that means a powerful feeling of of rage or bitter anguish. This grief, the same word for grief, is what Dinah's brothers feel when they find out their sister was raped. They grieve. It's what Joseph's brothers feel when they find out that the brother they sold into slavery and thought was long gone is now the ruler standing in front of them who holds their lives in his hand. It's how David felt when his son, who turned against him and betrayed him, when he finds out that he's died. That bitter anguish, that mix of, of anger that he betrayed him and sadness that he's gone. And, and in Isaiah 54, it's how a wife who's been deserted by her husband feels. This is how the heart of God responds to human sin. It grieves him deeply. He does not and cannot take sin lightly. He must do something about it. Which brings us to verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. Here we see just how seriously God takes sin. He says he will blot out every living creature from the face of the earth. This blotting out means to erase by washing. It was used for things like washing the letters off of a tablet or washing a dish clean. He says, I will blot out. I will wash it off. And now God says, because of the greatness of human wickedness and because of the great grief that it causes him as our holy creator, he's going to just wash the earth clean of sinners. He will blot out man from the face of the earth. In fact, he's going to uncreate the world he created. Just as he made man, the animals, the creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, now he'll uncreate them by cleansing the earth of them and starting over. Picture a craftsman crafting a beautiful wood table. It looks incredible. It's just got all sorts of intricate details and scroll work and creative design. It's just ornate. But it's not only beautiful, it's also strong. And it's built for a purpose, to serve the maker. But over time, this beautiful, purposeful table becomes infested with termites. Not just like a little corner of the table or not just one leg. Whole table. Because of the termites, its design is still visible, but it's damaged and marred. And the termites have eaten out the whole inside of the table so that nothing can be set on it. The whole point of having the table was ruined. If you put something on it, it will collapse. This table has been utterly eaten away from the inside by this infestation. If the craftsman is to discover how badly infested this table was, what would he do with such a corrupted, infested table? He'd destroy it. 
It's no longer good. There's nothing about it that fits what he made it for. This is why the flood happens. The flood wasn't just some freak act of nature. It wasn't some arbitrary thing that God just had a bad day and he got creative and said, what can I do? I'm just going to rain down on the people. God looked out and saw the good world that he had made, how it had become totally infested by sin. The people he'd made to bear his image now had hearts that instead of only always loving him, now only and always thought and intended evil. Sin had completely destroyed our core. Because of our wickedness and the grief that it caused our maker, mankind deserved to be completely wiped out. That's what any reasonable one of us would say. Yes, that table, pitch it. God had every right to look at us and say, pitch it. This is why God floods the earth. Because sin must be wiped out. Sinners must be blotted out and the earth washed clean. And that should make us tremble. If you know your heart, and you know the sin that still dwells there, and you see the grief that it causes God and God's response to the wickedness that lies in us, oh, it should make you tremble. But wait. But wait. There's one more little verse tucked in at the end of our passage. Things are so bleak Wickedness is so pervasive. Sin has become so all-encompassing. Everything is so bad. We are headed for a just and rightful judgment of destruction. But there's verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Everything changes because of this verse. The wickedness of all mankind had grown so bad that God is going to justly destroy man from the earth but one man found favor in God's eyes. And that word favor here is the Old Testament word for grace. What that means, friends, is that Noah didn't do anything to impress God or earn God's favor. God didn't owe Noah an exemption from the wrath to come. Noah was part of the same sinful generation. Yes, next week we'll find out that Noah was a righteous man, but that's not what we find out first. Before we find out he's righteous, we find out he receives grace. And I don't think that's an accident. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of a wicked generation, God was going to show grace to this one man and his family. He was going to rescue him from the wrath to come by offering him a refuge. So what we see here is that God's heart is not only grieved over sin, he's also gracious towards sinners. This is the good news of verse 8. Friends, the gospel is that because of God's grace, he chooses not to destroy us, but to deliver us. Instead of blotting us out as sinners, he blots out our sins. Isaiah 43 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. 
Friends, this is what God does. Rather than blot out sinners, he blots out our sins. He puts all our wickedness, all that horrendous evil that we see here in Genesis 6, he puts ours on Jesus and Jesus pays it all. Our sins had left us stained, unchangeably stained. We can't change the leper's spots. We can't do that. Only thy power and thine alone. And how did our sins get washed away? By the blood of Jesus. He washed us. He cleansed us. Just like that blotted out word of washing clean, God blots out and washes our sins. Friends, this is the good news. That even in the midst of a wicked generation, you can look around and be so discouraged and say, oh, the world's falling apart. Yeah, it is. And it has been from Genesis 6 or Genesis 3, if we're honest. But even in the midst of a wicked generation and in spite of our own deep evil, there is grace to be found in Jesus. Like Noah, we can find favor in God's eyes. Our wicked hearts can be washed clean and our grievous sins can be blotted out. Just like here in Genesis 6, judgment is coming. But there is grace to be found in Christ. And that is the message of Genesis 6, 1 to 8 to us this morning. What is it again? Our sin is worse than we know. But God's grace is better than we can imagine. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your grace to us in Christ. Lord, if we're honest, we do not like when your word holds up a mirror and shows us the wickedness in our own hearts. We would rather pretend that we are better than we are. That we're not quite as bad as your word reveals us to be. And yet, there's also that ring of truth in what we read. So God, would you humble us to recognize and admit and confess that we are this bad, that we are this desperate for a rescue outside of ourselves, that we can't get it together on our own, and that even as your special people, we sometimes wander and compromise with the world in ways we ought not. But God, would you also give us eyes to see the depth and the riches of your grace to us, Lord, would that grace be all the more powerful and all the more amazing and all the more sweet when we set it against the dark backdrop of our sin? Would we say he would show grace to someone like that? Lord, would you help us marvel at your grace? Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of grace, that we would rest in it, that we would revel in it, and that we would be eager to share that grace with others. We thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.